Well, as Gary mentioned, we're continuing in our series on the minor prophets, and it indeed has been a rich, rich series. And uh, today's prophet is Joel. And Joel, uh, like many of the minor prophets that we've heard so far, he finds himself in a very similar situation. Uh, there's really a long period of time that these minor prophets span, but it's a season of the life of the nation of Israel, where they are wayward in their relationship with God. They've drifted from God. They're not living up to their part of the bargain. They're not living into what it means to be the people of God and what God had called them to. And it's not that they entirely forsook God. They just didn't kind of walk away from God. They were still going through the religious practices that God had set up. The problem is, is their heart wasn't in it. They had long drifted since then, since those early times, and they were just going through the motions, if you will. They became indifferent, like a relationship that grew cold, they drifted from God. And what's interesting about God is we learn from the Bible, it says that God is jealous for us. Now, when you hear that, a lot of times I think I have imagery of, you know, codependent teenagers that are jealous in relationship. It's kind of got a negative connotation for me, but that's not true of God. God is perfect. And so when the Bible says God is jealous, that's actually a good thing. What he's saying is that he longs to be in right relationship with you. He's jealous for your heart. He wants your worship. He wants your affection. That's what God created you for, and he's jealous for that. And what we know about God from the Bible is that God is willing to bring discipline and correction into our lives, if necessary, to get our attention. I remember a story from my dad. Uh, we grew up in Detroit, and uh, back in the early 70s, this really new cool thing came out, fiberglass skis. And so my mom and dad went and bought skis. Problem with Detroit, it's flat as a pancake, and there's really no great places to ski, but there was this one place called Pine Knob. And uh, it was really just a little bunny hill, if you will, but there was a chairlift. And, and my dad tells a story how he got to the top of the chairlift uh, uh, one evening, and uh, uh, the chairlift or two behind him, there was a girl that was getting off the chairlift, and she was out of control. She got off the chairlift, and she was kind of careening out of control, and there was a mesh fence not too far from where the chairlift left off, and over the mesh fence was a 25, 30-foot drop-off. And my dad was standing there. Now, he couldn't reach out with his hands, so he kind of shuffled over, and he, boom, dropped his shoulder, knocked her right on her backside. And she looked up at him with her eyes really big. She said, thank you, sir, thank you for knocking her down. Sometimes God will put us on our backside. Sometimes he sees us heading to the cliff, and he's willing to lower the shoulder and to knock us down. It's the discipline of God. And Joel starts right from chapter one with describing a form of discipline that God was sending to get his people's attention. It's found in chapter one, verse one. The word of the Lord came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, O elders, and listen, all inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this happened in your days or in your father's days? Tell it to your son or tell your sons about it and let your sons tell their sons. This is a pretty big deal and their sons to the next generation. What the gnawing locust has left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust has left, the creeping locust has eaten. What the creeping locust has left, the stripping locust has eaten. I didn't know there were so many types of locusts. I guess there's nine different types in the Bible. 
As the chapter continues, Joel describes this devastating, total plague that's hitting Israel, a plague of locusts. Now, there's no food in the warehouse. The locusts have decimated their food source. Then there's a drought that follows on it. And there's no C-130s that can be flying in grain from another part of the world. I mean, this is life or death for these people. Can you imagine? I mean, we can't really think of a locust plague. It's a natural disaster that, that is just mind-boggling. Any swarm of locusts can have up to, or just billions and billions of insects in one swarm. A typical swarm like this would be 400 miles around. All right? It would be like the size of the city of Cairo, the largest city in Africa. Some swarms have been 1,000 square miles, darkening the sun. And when they descend on a farmer's field, it's instant devastation. These locusts can eat up to what 15 million people would eat in one day. That's how much food they can consume in one day. And so it just was just a, a horrific natural disaster. Now, here's some pictures. Uh, wait a minute, that's love bug season here in Florida. I figured that's the best. Was it me or did we have love bugs in biblical proportions this last time? I mean, it was really an amazing season. It's coming again in September, uh, by the way. But I figured that may be the closest thing that we can kind of equate to what it was like, those things. Now, these don't eat anything, right? But it was just... Uh, an amazing time here, but this is for real. This is a terrifying plague, all right? And it's not something you would ever want to go through. And if you did, you would talk about it for generations. In chapter 115 and verse 15, Joel equates this event to what he calls the day of the Lord. In other words, it's something that God sent now, this is a major theme in the book of Joel. He mentions it in all three chapters, the idea of the day of the Lord. Biblically, what the day of the Lord means is literally a day of God, a day of God's judgment. The day of the Lord is the Lord's judgment. And so here in chapter one, Joel equates this locust plague to the day of the Lord. In chapter two, he talks about another army that's coming, an army of locusts, but most theologians believe that now he's switched figuratively to talk about the Assyrian army that is coming, and God himself is depicted as at the head of the army. And he says, this too is a coming day of the Lord. And then in chapter three, though, something very, very different occurs. He calls it the day of the Lord that is coming, but he's talking now and he pivots to talking about the very distant future. He begins prophesying about what's going to happen at the end of time. So the recent past and the impending army that's coming are just a precursor, a foreshadowing of what God is going to do at the end of time. Now, when you hear this, Joel just seems to be playing right into the typical stereotypical view that many people have today about God, in particular the God of the Old Testament, right? I mean, a biblical plague of locusts, a God who's angry with sin, a God who's bringing discipline, a God who's bringing his wrath, a God who's bringing his judgment. And to be honest, that turns off a lot of people. They wrestle with this idea that God is a God who is going to address the problem of sin in our world and in our lives. But Joel reminds us, on the other hand, he says in verse 13 of chapter 2 that God is gracious and compassionate. He's slow to anger. He's full of loving kindness. His love is kind. 
and that he is willing to change his mind if people authentically will humble themselves before them. And so this kind of view of God that he's this God of wrath, but then he's this God of compassion, it creates an unresolvable tension for many. They can't reconcile this in their mind. How can he be both? Truly, God is fearsome in his wrath and judgment. The Bible says it unapologetically so. But he is also gracious and compassionate and full of kind love. So how do we reconcile this? Well, what's clear as you read through the arc of Scripture is that God is persistently and patiently and passionately pursuing the hearts of men and women in every generation throughout the world. That's what's on God's heart. You see, God wants to bless us. That's his intent from the beginning. So the problem is not God. He's actually utterly consistent. The problem is us and our continual propensity to be drawn towards sin and to be drawn towards indifference or rebellion towards God. The problem is in the heart of people. So as sinful people deserving of his judgment, the real question is, how is it even possible that we would experience his grace and his compassion and his kind love? Well, the good news is Joel helps us understand how. And he wants us to know three things about God. So the first thing that God, uh, Joel wants us to know about God is that God responds to a contrite heart. God responds truly to the contrite heart. Read uh, verse 1, 13 to 15. Gird yourselves with sackcloth, Joel says in response to this plague, and lament, O priests, Wail, O ministers of the altar, come and spend the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, for the grain offering and the drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. He goes on and he calls for a fast and a, and a solemn assembly, the gathering of all of God's people who are solemnly admitting their sin and coming before God and, and, and beseeching God because they recognize, as he says, alas, the day of the Lord is upon us. So what's his response? Joel's response to this discipline is lament. Lament. What's lament? We don't talk about it much in church, but it's really something that you see so frequently in the Bible. It's all throughout the Old Testament uh, prophets. They're constantly in lament or calling people to lament. And of the 150 Psalms in the book of Psalms, 65 of them are psalms of lament. Jesus lamented in the night that he was betrayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. And so we see lament practiced in the scripture. So what is it? Well, in lament, we express our deep sorrow over our own brokenness, the brokenness of God's people, and the brokenness of our world. It's doing business with God. It's raw honesty where we confess our sins where we bring to God our questions, where we bring to God our complaints about what's going on in the world. It is really one of the more deeper and beautiful acts and forms of worship in all of the Bible. Right? It's the human soul laid bare before God, and we come before him broken, we come before him contrite, sometimes confused, many times in pain, and we wrestle with God. It's a fight of faith a fight to get answers, a fight to say, God, what is going on here? It comes from here. And it's the person willing to do business with him. Joel 
picks up this call in chapter two, this call to lament in verses 12 and 13. He says, even now declares the Lord, return to me with all of your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning, rend your heart. In other words, tear your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. He's gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. Who knows? He may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing instead of grain offerings and drink offerings for the Lord your God. Do you see that this is more than just some religious exercise where you're kind of going through the motions? This is deep. This is really, really heartfelt. And it's not something you do to manipulate with God or manipulate God. You, you go there when your heart is feeling this pain. I didn't know it at the time, but my first lament came when I was a junior in college there at the University of Michigan. When I got to college, I didn't want much to do with God. I was raised in a family that went to church on Sunday, but the other 166 hours of the week looked a lot different than it did on Sunday morning. There was a lot of religious hypocrisy in my family. And so those first two and a half years of college, I just was running from God and trying to find whatever it is I was looking for in a whole host of different ways. On this particular evening, I partied in ways I had never partied before like this, and it was bad. I ended up in a bar, and I was in a confrontation with a guy. I had a beer glass in my hand, and I crushed the beer glass in my hand. Real, real smart for a young man to do. And it ripped a gash in my fingers. Still have the scar today to uh, talk about it. And, uh, and so it was bleeding pretty profusely, and I was pretty wasted. So my friend took me to the university hospital there on in a bitterly cold February night. Well, he got sober in the waiting room, forgot totally what he was there for, didn't even know I was there. He jumped in his car and drove home. So this is two o'clock in the morning. It's a sub-zero night in Michigan, and I have the two and a half mile walk home. I sobered up in a hurry, and it was one of the lowest points of my life. And that evening and the next day, I found myself in tears, kneeling next to my bed in my little dorm room, pouring out my heart to God pouring out the pain of the dysfunction I had grown up with. Didn't know it at the time. These weren't words, these were sobs. These were deep felt emotions that I could barely even put into words. But I knew that God heard. I knew the truth of this, that God is gracious and compassionate. He's slow to anger. He's full of love and he's longing for us to turn back to him. And so my first experience with lament I was able to experience the truth of the scripture. David says, a broken and contrite heart, God will not despise. Through the prophet Isaiah, God says, to this person I will look, to him who is humble and broken of spirit, who trembles at my word. And so we learn from Joel that a contrite heart gets the attention of God and he eagerly rallies to us in our time of need. But there's a second thing Joel wants us to understand about God. He restores what the locusts have eaten. Joel tells us that God restores what the locusts have eaten. In verse 25, you can look at this in your bulletin. He says, then I will make up for you or to you for the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the years of food that have been gone, the creeping locust, the stripping locust, the gnawing locust, the great army which I sent among you, you will have plenty to eat and be satisfied. And praise the name of the Lord your God who's dealt wondrously with you. Then my people will never be put to shame. To lose your food source is a huge deal. Not to God. He's saying, I'll make it up. I'll come to your rescue if you'll just trust me. 
I love this about God. He's bigger than we think he is. And he's able to do more than we ever dreamed. As a dad, I I remember my kids, uh, if they lost that favorite toy when they were just little children, or if we would go out for an ice cream cone, you know, and the ice cream maybe not fully in the cone, and they would lick it, and the ice cream cone would fall off and splat. And the eyes would dwell up with tears, and the little lip would start to quiver, and it's like... And then, oh, I love coming in on that. Oh, daddy's able to get, take, don't worry about that. We'll get you an ice cream cone with two scoops, right? Because I could restore what they lost. Well, God is saying that. As Gary mentioned, we're now granddad and grandma, mama, and papa. And so I guarantee you when little Tommy licks his ice cream cone and it falls over, he's getting three scoops. I mean, this is going to be big, all right? He's going to know that we can take care of that. God can take care of us. So when the locusts show up on the doorstep of your life, and they're coming, life is hard. We go through seasons of life where there's difficulty. We lose jobs, we have health issues, we have difficulties in relationships, we lose loved ones. Life is hard, the locusts are coming. God wants you to know, he'll see you through it and he'll restore what was lost. Sometimes the locusts in our lives is us, just our dumb old stupid selves. We do it to ourselves, and we experience the consequences of bad decisions. We experience the consequences of of, of life gone wrong in our own dumb choices. Even then, God is gracious and compassionate and able to restore what we lost through our own bad choices. I saw this with my mom and dad. My dad passed away uh, a year ago at the uh, ripe age of 85. And he and my mom were married for 67 years. Now, I've been meeting with my mom quite a bit and just helping to support her. And she shared recently something that I had known, but it was just refreshing to hear it again. She said, uh, Jeffrey, they all call me Jeffrey. Um, You know, the first part of our marriage was just horrific. I don't know how they survived. They did things and said things uh, that would have destroyed far more marriages, many, many marriages. Uh, Somehow they made it through, but halfway through, they both came to Christ. My dad returned to his relationship with Christ. My mom came to Christ for the first time. And they began a journey of healing. And they began a journey of sweet building of a brand new relationship. And so the last half of their marriage was one of intimacy, one of joy, one of great united uh, intimacy between the two of them. And it was just a beautiful thing to see. God restores what the locusts have eaten. I've seen it. He'll do it for you. So where do you feel the locusts in your life have come into your life? Maybe it's your marriage like my mom and dad. Don't give up. Maybe it's relationships. I I can't categorize every single possible place where the locusts come into our lives. You know instinctively and immediately as I raise this, God is inviting you to trust him. God is inviting you to believe him for a miracle. God is inviting you to come and lament before him that he might see your heart of contrition and that heart he will not despise. And let him do his thing. Let him show his godness to you. Let him be gracious and compassionate and full of love that is kind. The third thing that God wants us to know is that God reveals his plan for the end of time and how he's going to resolve what seems like a problem to us, his perfect love and his perfect justice. God, through Joel, reveals part of his plan for the end of time. And it's very, very exciting. Years ago, when I first got here at Summit, we did a survey of the congregation and we asked people, what do you wanna hear? 
And one of the top five topics that people wanted to hear was what happens at the end of time, end times prophecy. And so we're going to touch on that, and we're going to go there for a little bit this morning because Joel goes there. And he highlights two things that are going to happen towards the end of time. All right, And the first one is found in Joel chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. And he says, And afterwards, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. And even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. Now, if you're familiar with your New Testament, Peter in Acts chapter 2, it describes how the church got started. And Peter is preaching a sermon, and there in this upper, this, this upper room, we see these gathering of people from all over the world, and God's Spirit is poured out, and it goes, and the Spirit of God lives into each person. He fills every person in the room, and they're able to speak in each other's languages and understand. And Peter gets up and he describes what's happening and he says, this is a fulfillment of Joel's prophecy, that the spirit of God is going to be poured out towards the end times and he will come into every believer. This is a fantastic time for us to be alive. Moses longed for this day. In Numbers eleven twenty nine. he says, oh, that every person was a prophet of God and that God's spirit would be put upon them all. But God did more than Moses' prayer. Not only does the Spirit come upon us like he did in the Old Testament, he would come upon a select few people to do some work, but then he would leave. In the New Testament, he comes and lives in us, and he'll never leave. And so we live in this time. The Spirit of God, at the moment of salvation, enters into the believer, and he makes us a new person in Christ, and he empowers us to live the life that God calls us to live so that we can bring the kingdom of God to this planet in his power. What an exciting time to live. This is big-time stuff. Joel predicted this day. The second thing that Joel prophesies about in the future is found in verse 30 and 31. And he says, I will show wonders in the heaven and on earth and blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. God literally is going to shake creation. Now, I've given an image here that I think will be a diagram that will help us in understanding uh, how prophecy works. And the diagram depicts the different um, chapters, if you will, in the unfolding of the history as the Bible lays it out for us. We have the creation account in Genesis, and there, shortly thereafter, the fall of mankind, when Adam and Eve chose to disobey God. And then in chapter 12, God chooses Abraham to be the father of his nation, Israel. And he says, through you, Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Now, this is where Joel finds himself in that period of time of Israel. And so what happens with prophets who are living in that period of time? It's as if they have kind of a quiver full of arrows. And when they pull out an arrow that's prophecy for the future, they shoot it up over the horizon, and they can't quite see where it's going to land on the other side. They can't see the time of the coming of the Messiah. Some prophets did, but 
They didn't know exactly what that fully meant. They couldn't see the time of the church or the giving of the Holy Spirit. They couldn't see everything about end times. It was up over the horizon. So God would give them uh, an arrow, a piece of truth. And when we collect all the arrows, we can piece together the story of Scripture, of, of, of what's happening. So Joel has a couple arrows. One is that there's coming of the Holy Spirit, and he's going to live in all the people of God. But another arrow that Joel shoots is into the end times, the time right before the coming of the day of the Lord. And so we see the Holy Spirit into end times and new creation. Now, end times prophecy, we could spend months, all right? And there's so many different views, but some of the big pieces of it are this thing called the millennium. The millennium is a thousand-year reign of Christ that's spoken about in the book of Revelation. Some people debate whether that's figurative or literal. I have my views on this. The Bible also speaks about a period of tribulation before the final coming day of the Lord. Again, there's some theologians that think that that's um, figurative. Many theologians, most that I've read, believe that that's a literal thing that's going to happen. And then that is broken down into uh, pre-tribulation. The first three and a half years in Revelation is a time of peace. But they debate, when is the church going to be taken up into heaven that Paul speaks about in Corinthians and in Thessalonians? Or in the Thessalonians? So some people think it's a pre-trib rapture. Some people think it's a mid-tribulation rapture. Some people think it's post-trib. I subscribe to pan-trib. If you're a follower of Christ, it's going to pan out for you in the end. <laughs> now, I have my views, and I love talking about this with people, and I have friends, and we've landed in sort of different places about uh, exactly what's going to happen in the end. But what none of us debate, what none of us debate is that Jesus is coming again, and there will be a day where he sets all things to rights, a day of the Lord, a final judgment that is going to occur, where he in his holiness is going to hold all sin accountable. So Joel's arrows are the Holy Spirit. Joel's arrows are the things right before the day of the Lord. But in verse 32, he makes this wonderful claim. It's a claim that rings true to our day today this morning, that anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. You see, God is orchestrating the unfolding of history. His justice demands that sin and the guilt be held accountable. The ills and the evils of this world will be set to rights. He will have his day in court, but he's postponed that day and he's appointed a day in the future for this very reason, so that his kind and compassionate love can be made available to more people. The reason God allows sin to continue on today, and some of it's horrific, all you got to do is turn on your news, is he wants more people to turn to him. He's going to set it to rights, but for now, we're in this period where his gracious, compassionate love is calling for us to come to him. So how does he do this? It's the message of the cross, Jesus. The Old Testament people of God looked forward as best as they could based on the prophecies of God to that event in history where God would send his son. We look back to the cross, but in both cases, that was God's solution to resolve his perfect justice and his perfect love. As Zach likes to say, Jesus 
live the life that we were supposed to live, the perfect spotless lamb of God. He didn't deserve to die on the cross. He did nothing wrong. But he died the death that we all deserved. And there at Calvary, God poured out every last iota of his wrath. And Jesus bore that for you and me. His justice was fully satisfied. He didn't wink an eye at sin. He didn't just say, oh, didn't see that one. No, Jesus paid it all. Every last iota. But then he rose from the dead, defeating for all time our enemies of sin and death. And he rose victoriously for all who call upon him can now be saved. They can receive forgiveness of sins and they can receive the power of the Holy Spirit and they can be transformed and he can restore what the locusts have eaten. This is our great God. So today's application is real simple. I'm inviting you because this is what Joel invites us to do, to call upon the name of the Lord. There may be some here today that this would be the first time where you cry out to God, similar to what I did in my dorm room. And you say, God, I need you. And I want to experience your love and your grace and your forgiveness for my sin. And I'm gonna trust you, Jesus, for what you paid at the cross. Others here, maybe you've drifted and you're trying to get uh, back to God or you're realizing God wants to get you back to him. And so why resist any longer? Learn what I had to learn the easy way. I learned it the hard way at school. I ended up with my face down in the mud, so to speak, like the prodigal son. God is wooing you back. Today could be that day that you turn. Others here, you can really identify to the locusts in your life, and God is inviting you in the midst of your pain, in the midst of your confusion, in the midst of your questions, to call upon him. All I know is this, and I know this because the scriptures teach it, but more importantly, I know this to be true in my 40-some years of walking with him. God will not resist a contrite and broken heart that calls upon him. He's that gracious. He's that compassionate. He's that full of kind love. Call on him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Joel. Thank you for the truth that we learn about you and the exciting things we learn about the future. But Lord, even the important thing of learning about your character, Lord, you're utterly consistent. You're going to judge sin. But the way you resolved your incredible love for us is you decided in the greatest act of love this history of the world and the universe will ever know, you took our punishment in love. So now you are fully right in your judgment. Justice has been served and we're free to come to you. My prayer, Lord, for all of us here, as your spirit spoke to us this morning, that we would call upon you in the powerful and risen name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.